you reach a certain age where you know everything. It's about 17. There was a sign, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find it, which was a heck of a statement considering the internet and what it is now. But there was a sign that I saw, and it was around the time that I was of that age. And it was basically, go out, get a job, whatever else, now that you're 17, while well, you still know everything. And I found that it peaks at that point, but it starts to go down with, with experience. At least, hopefully, it goes down with experience. And one of the things of adding wisdom to your life is that you get to where you don't know everything, and that decreases less and less to where you find out that in the grand scheme of things, you actually know very little. Even if you are quite intelligent, and even if you are quite educated, there's still a lot about how things work and how the world is that you just don't know. So when you, if you have ever said that, if you are around that age, and if you ever said that, have you noticed that there are people who may chuckle around you when you do say that? Because they think it's adorable. Because they know that you're about to find out. And it may take some time, but you're going to find out. Because one of the things that we, and we don't know this because we just haven't had that life experience. I've gone through it, you've gone through it, or you're about to go through it. Because you still are possessed with the idea that you are having thoughts that no one else has ever had before. Now, in only in really rare cases is that true, where you think of something and no one has ever thought of that before. And there's been a great deal of that in this particular century because we've had expansion of so many technological and medical and sociological advancements that there have been a number of things where this particular thought was, was, never, was never thought of before. When the electron was discovered back in the late 19th century, everyone was like, whoop-de-doo, what's an electron do? Everything now. The whole world's run by electronics. So, but for the vast majority of us, you're not going to have anything that's, that's, a, that's a grand thought. One of the closest that I think I've ever come to this, and I don't know that I really gave it that much credence, or I never really thought, I don't think I ever really said, I'm sure no one has ever thought of this before. But I know it was something that I had never really heard in discussions that I was having, and I was curious to, to hear more about it and have a discussion. And when it came to the creation narrative, so Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or Genesis 1 and 2, I guess. There's been a lot of argument over, is that a literal six-day creation? Is it a six-day, 24-hour creation? What's the meaning of the Hebrew word yom? You have these conversations. And one of the things that I thought of was, well, what if that's not the point of that story? What if the point of the story is to elevate the idea of a Sabbath? Because God creates the world in six days and then he rests on the seventh. It's not because he's sleepy. It's because he's setting the standard for what the Sabbath should be. So I started thinking, well, maybe that's the point of that story. Maybe it's not to affirm that God made the world in six days. It's to affirm that the Sabbath is important and perhaps you would not be in the shape that you're in if you took a day off every once in a while or at least once a week. Sounded kind of revolutionary to me, and then over the years, I've found that that's been discussed for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's like, okay, that's, that's fine. No big deal. 
So as we conclude our series on this is the kingdom, this is a pattern that we set up. Because when we engage in spiritual formation, when we engage in formation in our homes, whether it's spiritual or not, and I would make the argument that most everything that we do is, is spiritual formation to a certain extent, it's a pretty similar pattern from the early ages when we're doing spiritual formation. I'll just leave our spiritual formation for now. We tell kids who Jesus is, and hopefully we're saying who Jesus is to us because we want them to have some bedrock foundation on who Jesus is. So we tell them these things, and then they parrot it back. Like, you know, who is, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Okay, good, got it. You know, and, and we do this for a period of years. And then by the time they get into the teen stages, preteen, teenager, young adult, where they know everything, we want them to go on that discovery for themselves. We want them to find out, okay, who do you say Jesus is? And some of it is different than what your faith is in certain respects. Perhaps God shows himself faithful in different ways. Maybe for this particular person, he's shown himself to be more of a provider. Maybe in the case of another person, he's shown himself to be more of a healer. It doesn't mean that he's not a provider to the other person and not a healer to the other person. It means that that is how he has shown himself faithful in that particular point, in that particular time and place. But the thing is, none of it is, is new. It's new to you, perhaps. It's new to me, depending on the situation but it's not necessarily new. And in fact, many ways, what was old, what was old wisdom, what was old knowledge, becomes new again. Because we have a foundation that we have to start with that starts from somewhere. So when Jesus is wrapping up his teachings on the kingdom of heaven, and understand that if you've, if you've been reading your Bible and, and reading up on what Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to, you will notice that I didn't cover everything. I didn't take every parable. I didn't cover every aspect of it. I stayed in one particular location. Uh, feel free to go into other parts of the Gospels and look at what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven and how he compares it. We just did a little bit of a primer to kind of get you going on your own and reading more about it. And I hope that's something that you've taken advantage of the last couple of weeks. So after Jesus is wrapping up this lesson, he says, do you understand everything that I've said? And the disciples go, yep. Whether they do or not. Because that's what you do in class. The teacher says, you understand? You're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm just killing time till the bell rings, man. Whatever it takes. So Jesus asked them this, and they say, yeah. Now, they may have understood it fully or understood it to the best of their ability. We don't know if they actually understood it because there were a number of things that they still didn't get about who Jesus is and what his mission was. There's still a lot of that was in the fog, so to speak. But they understood it about as well as they could. So then Jesus says, all right, well, then, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now, there's a very subtle distinction that Jesus makes here. The teachers of the law, and your translation might say scribe, they're not in the kingdom of heaven. So 
something we've been talking about the last few weeks is this distinction between people who are in the kingdom of heaven and people who are not in the kingdom of heaven. And the nice thing about that is that if you are out of the kingdom of heaven, it, it doesn't take a whole lot to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's not an exclusive club. Everyone is welcome in it. Everyone can be in it. But sometimes the price of admission means that we have to crucify ourselves, our desires, and then pick up our crosses and follow him into the kingdom. And many people are not willing to do that on a daily basis. But it's open to everyone. Everyone can get in. But Jesus says that the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the people that are the religious leaders of the day are not necessarily in the kingdom. And they're not necessarily in there just because of the position they hold. One of the, for me, one of the endearing and enduring facets of the previous Left Behind movies. And what I thought they did really well was that the pastor doesn't get raptured. Because he didn't believe in what he was saying. He was good at what he was saying, but he didn't buy at what he was saying. And then the rapture takes place in the movie, and then he's like, oh, well, all this is real. I guess I better get on board with it. I thought they did that really well. And, and communicate that really well because, again, as Jesus says later, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were saying, not necessarily Lord, Lord, but they thought that they were doing God's work. But Jesus says here, but if the holy people, quote unquote, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, if they enter the kingdom of heaven, it's like a owner of a house who brings out new treasures as well as old. So Jesus is also saying that people do not get into the kingdom by their own birthright. We touched on this last week, and it's been kind of sprinkled out the last couple of weeks. Your church membership doesn't get you into heaven. The amount you tithe doesn't get you into heaven. The place that you were born doesn't get you into heaven. The place where you live doesn't get you into heaven. Only faith in Christ gets you into heaven. And that's not even the major point. Eternal life is great, but Jesus wants to have a full life here and now in relationship with him. Because if you don't have a relationship with him here on earth, relationship in heaven is not going to make a whole lot of sense. And if you don't want relationship here on earth, heaven is probably not going to be that great for you in any case. So, but the person who does this, they bring out new and old treasures. There's wisdom from the old and there's wisdom from the new. There's things that you have to understand because you have had that personal experience with Jesus. Because at a certain point, it can't be your grandparents' faith. It can't be your parents' faith. It's got to be yours. You have to take ownership of it. It's your responsibility to decide who Jesus is in your life. And each generation has to make this call. Each generation has to make this decision. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus calls out to each and every one of us, to each and every generation, who do you say I am? My faith is not the same as the faith of my father. And my father's faith is not the same as his grandfather. And so on and so forth. It's different in certain respects. I'm thankful for a lot of the teaching tools that the internet has provided. My grandpa never said any such prayer. Things change. Things are different. So 
What does this teacher do once they are a disciple? They bring out new treasure and old. They bring out the old things, the things that matter, the things that have stood the test of time with new things along with it. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about was not a brand new concept. It was reinforcing old principles. That the things that Jesus talked about, regardless of what it was, whether it was uh, the wheat and the tares, whether it was the pearl of value of uh, high value, um, whether it was the man who went out to sow, none of that stuff was a brand new thought. None of it was anything that hadn't existed or a concept that hadn't existed before. If you went into the Old Testament, if you went into the Hebrew Bible, you could find everything that Jesus was talking about confirmed in the Old Testament. But so many things had gotten out of, out of whack, out of step with that particular society that it was no longer able to just look at what God's Word said and then follow it. There were all these other things that came around it. And we have a lot of that now. There's a lot of different, different viewpoints, different interpretations out there of what Scripture actually says. And not enough people that are willing to go, well, this is, this is what it actually says right here. Right here is what it actually says. And then moving on from that. So the scribe holds on to the old traditions. The teacher of the law holds on to the old way. The old way, and just to keep it simple, things like the Ten Commandments. I had, a, I had a discipleship pastor who asked this question in a class. He said, because Paul says that we are no longer under law, but under grace. And he asked, okay, so what does that mean? So are we under law or are we under grace? And everyone who's read that part of the scripture goes, well, we're under grace. And he says, okay, can you kill people? And they said, yeah. No, they didn't. They said, well, no, that's not right. And I said, that's the law. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. What about stealing? Did the resurrection of Jesus mean that being a thief is back on the menu? Well, no, of course not. So there's elements of that that we're still under law. But the presence of Christ in our lives means that we don't have to worry so much about what's written in the law. We go by the law of love. We go by... You know, say what you want about the what would Jesus do bracelets, but that wasn't a bad guiding light or fabric, however you want to look at it. What would Jesus do in this situation? Well, Jesus would probably uphold the Ten Commandments. Jesus probably would not bear false witness. Obviously, he wouldn't bear false witness. He wouldn't lie. He wouldn't murder. He wouldn't steal. He wouldn't covet. He would keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those are all part of the law. There's nothing new, there's nothing revolutionary about those teachings, but it's things that we need to get back to. And yet, because of the environment that we're in, they might seem revolutionary. They might seem like just a, a brand new concept than anything that maybe we've ever heard before. And there are times where you have to reinvent some things, as I've said. Your faith is going to look different from your parents. There's going to be certain things that are going to be the, the same. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the way, the truth, and the life for all generations. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, that doesn't change. But how he reveals himself to you as healer, as provider, that may be different. But he's Lord to all of us, and that doesn't change. He calls us all to repentance. That doesn't change. We recognize, or we recognize that we repent. We call upon the name of the Lord and we're saved. That doesn't change. But there are other things that might. And as we get older, as we mature, we realize that we don't know everything. That there's opportunities for new facets of wisdom to come out of the old scriptures. That the Bible is not just something that was written thousands of years ago and is not relevant. You could go to any number of books in the Bible and pull out things that will be in tomorrow's newspaper. So there are new treasures as well as old. The kingdom of heaven is new and old. One of the most tactile ways in which that is expressed is in the Lord's Supper. Communion comes from Passover. Passover was the time when God had rendered his final judgment against Egypt. And what's interesting, too, is that essentially God let the Pharaoh pick. So whatever, whatever thing comes out of your mouth, the awful thing that you want to do is, is what's going to be done to you. It's like, you've heard, judge not lest ye be judged. Like, here's a, here's a working example. Here's the measure. Pharaoh says, kill all the firstborn. God says, okay. So he instructs the Israelites to take lamb's blood and to paint it over the door frames of their houses, so that when the destroying angel comes, the angel will pass over, it will see the lamb's blood, it will see the blood of the lamb, and will pass over those houses. And the firstborn will be kept safe. But as it goes over the Egyptian side of things, and there is no lamb's blood, there is no sacrifice, there is nothing there, the firstborn of every household was stricken. And Scripture says that there was not a single house in Egypt that was not affected by this last punishment. And God called his people to celebrate that, to recognize that, and remember that for generations on how God saved and redeemed his people, not because they were Israelites and not because they were Jews, but because they were obedient. So when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, A lot of things are similar there. We recognize and we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Now, taking communion doesn't make us saved. It doesn't grant us any special properties or anything like that. But we, we partake in the Lord's Supper remembering and celebrating what Jesus has done for us on the cross. If you are forgiven you are welcome to partake of communion. If you are not, now is your time.
All who know the joys of sin's forgiveness are welcome at the Lord's table. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sin and for the beginning of a new covenant. Drink and do this in remembrance of me. This is a time of remembering what Jesus has done in our lives and an opportunity to recognize that Jesus offers forgiveness. And Jesus offers forgiveness no matter how old your sin is or how new it is. No matter how long it's been or how short it's been. In fact, when, when we repent and we are sincere about it and we ask God for forgiveness, that he forgives us and that he wipes our sin away. He doesn't keep it for later. He doesn't think about it. Well, you know, it's, it's just like Patrick to do this again. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west and restores us into a right relationship with him.